1: Please note that some listeners may find the content of this show upsetting. Due to the often sensitive nature of discussion, this show is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Noel Williams, youth and justice consultant, who's also had first-hand experience within the criminal justice system.
2: Sometimes we need people who become the rose that grows through concrete, and I I always base myself on that. And I base myself on that actually anything can change. The wonderful people that's helped me in my life and the charities and the education I've got has literally been able to make sure that I'm not somebody who's gonna go out and be a bad person in the world, but I can go and make an impact and a good point in people's lives. I'm Mr. Noel Williams, a 28-year-old political commentator and a policy advisor who has not always lived such a nice life and been on the straight and narrow path. I actually grew up in social housing with a mother to two other brothers uh, and a father who wasn't really around. And that was the beginning of a very rocky road. Educationally, I kind of lacked in school. I was statemented um, in primary school. And then when I got to secondary school, I was kicked out rather early which would be year seven and six months later I was doing my first custodial sentence for five years for actually having my part to play in an aggravated burglary that was done by older lads but because I was a lookout and refused to name them it's uh, called joint enterprise and of Mm -hmm. course you go to prison too it was 2002 2003 so in them days you would get five years and have to do at least three years three months it wasn't just straight away half okay but the judge was quite remarkable because at the time he said to me that you've been so unruly, you're out doing so much bad stuff that actually if I give you this long time, you get an education. And it's funny that I say that because that is probably the foundations to my life and what has put me in a better position to where I am today.
1: That sentence.
2: That sentence, most definitely. And that judge having the foresight to probably see that actually a year or two, he'd probably be 15 14, come back out. Um, unfortunately have a very rocky life at home, as my parents weren't balanced and one of them were very heavily involved in crime himself, as is my dad. So, you know, I already grew up with those adverse childhood experiences. And it's good that the judge could see that in my mitigation and kind of g- gave me a lengthy time so I could actually try to rebirth myself so I could actually probably come out with uh the necessary GCSEs to at least go to college and give myself a better chance of getting up the social mobility ladder, really.
1: Mm. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because clearly there's a situation there where the judge has seen what your life was like and decided that the best thing and the and the way that he could help you, actually, because he sounds like he was a decent guy, the way to help you was to send you to prison. So on the one hand, I get it. But on the other hand, you sort of think, well, is this the way it should be? Should someone go to prison, which is should be saved for the most dangerous people in our society? I think we've come a long way away from that. Um, is that the place where someone should be saved?
2: No, not at all. I, I don't think so. I think it's also down to failings, um, as well as my parents, because, you know, they are my parents and they have a duty of care to grow me up in the best way possible to make sure that I am going out into society as a decent young man. Obviously when they're committing their own crime and they see life in a certain way, um, my mother's always been a bit better. She's not condoning anything and she was a very big stickler for me to actually educate myself. But then going to school, I was kicked out of school relatively early for, you could say, minor bad behaviour. It wasn't criminal.
1: And remind me how old you were when you were kicked out of school. I was kicked school. out
2: of school at 12 years old. That's well, year seven. Yeah. You know, 11, 12 is, yeah, seven. And, and to be quite frank, I went to a PRU Um, Mm, which was around the people referral unit alternative provision but I was also kicked out of there three months later Mm. and then I went to a behavioral school which they send people to when they think young people may have some sort of mental problem and it was found that actually no he just has a statement for his education and gets quite frustrated when nobody comes to him to talk and I also needed a lilac overlay to read. So I had Ooh, one or two <laughs> I had one or two situations that literally school didn't see. Yeah. So, you know, if then I'm just going to be labeled the kid in the corner that causes trouble.
1: Yeah. So
2: by the time I got to court, I'd caused maybe one or two minor offenses, criminal damage I had on my record. So I had a referral order already. I was known for youth offending. Mm. And you know, I I agree with you. I don't think a young person should have to be sent to a secure unit for them to actually, you know, get the benefits of what society can give to them.
1: Well, and also the obstacles, because yes, a lot of people will go to prison and will talk, not highly of it, but they will say, that's where I found myself. That's where I accessed the better part of myself. It gave me time away from the chaos to look at myself. So, but you know, at the end of the day, you have a criminal record you can't go to america for example you will probably struggle to get a job unless you know you've got a a big persistent character and you're very intelligent like you are you know it's hard all those barriers that get put in your way so yes you're sort of slightly you're being helped on the one hand but on the other hand you're being given a lifetime Of obstacles.
2: Yes, most definitely. I'm sure we'll get into it further when we talk and I'll talk to you about other uh, sentences I've had to serve. But I tell you why this is very poignant is because I was able to get my GCSEs and A-levels from this one sentence, Mm. which is slightly remarkable. You know, I definitely know I'm the first person in the whole of the country to get A-levels inside a YOI. And it was called Huntercombe at the time, Manchester College of the the Providers. They were fantastic with me. And they actually had somebody that sat down with me who did a philosophy and literature for my AS levels. And I think that's absolutely unbelievable that actually a YOI can facilitate that. And that was because I I did in my GCS season, spent so much time learning during this, this prison sentence. And to be quite fair, I couldn't read and write until I was 15. So
0: wow.
2: I think the judge had had gotten onto something there and which it really was that I wasn't willing to either. As you said, yeah. I didn't like the school setting. I kind of felt like I was you know, left in the corner Whereas, as you know, prisons are very kind of close knit, no more than 10 people. And it was a secure unit at the time. Then I went to a wire So there's no more than 8 to 12 people in a class at one time. Right. So you
1: were getting the attention that maybe you lacked.
2: I got the attention that I lacked. And I also got the attention that I felt I needed. You know, I felt worthy. I felt like, oh, I'm going to education. I'm getting a certificate. I've got an AQA. Then it started to build up. And, you know, I'm doing food tech and I'm doing history. And funny thing is, I didn't really care about these things when I was outside but now I'm having a valid interest in them
1: and why do you not think that the pupil referral unit works because they're also very small you know I've been to pupil referral units you have sort of two teachers and maybe four kids depending on how difficult they might be so why did that not work
2: unfortunately for me my state of mind at the time was well now I've been kicked out of mainstream school why do I have to go to anything you know young kids that they just want to be their own people you think Mm -hmm. you're an adult before you're an adult. But really, what was a bigger problem for me was I only went from nine to 12. Now, three hours half day with. Oh, it was
1: only three hours half three day. Three hours half day. Right. So
2: they had other kids that came in in the afternoon for the rest of the afternoon. So in the morning, it would be from year seven to year nine. And the afternoon would be from year 10 to year 11. But we also have to remember a lot of the young people who are attending these places have also been kicked out of school. And they are on the periphery of gangs, crime. This is now the pipeline from education into prison. I'm yeah, literally were... on that line, living it with them. Yeah. And quite unfortunate, my poor mum's, you know, at college because she was studying to be a physiotherapist at the time. She's at college all day. She's being a dinner lady for the other half of the day. My dad is absent. Um, unfortunately, like a lot of young black males who are living in Britain at the moment and in America, it seems to be a similarity that fatherless families kind of crime can follow you that path that way. So I, I never really had anyone to watch where I was at 12 o'clock. So as soon as I left my house at nine, nobody knew where I was at 12.
1: Right. So you do three hours in the pupil referral unit. And then what did you do for the rest of the day? That,
2: my point exactly. I, I literally was. I can't say I'm not somebody who has their own mind. Of course I do. And no matter what crime I've committed, I'd always take full responsibility for my part played in it and hold my hands up. But I was left to the devices of some good 19, 20, 21-year-olds who I really wanted to impress. Mm. Um, You know, I didn't want to be left out. I saw kids that were 15, 16 getting the latest trainers and my mum couldn't afford them. My dad wasn't about. My mum was just trying to make ends meet and we, you know, had to make do with what we had which wasn't bad but at the same time when you know your shoes are falling apart and you you want to be part of something you're going to do what everyone else is doing yeah. which ended up being small things you know you start off oh can you take this package to the top of the hill little do you, you do know there's drugs in there but you don't know how much yeah you don't know uh, the effect
1: going back to your father um can you tell me a bit more about him and how important and how significant that gap is for a young boy growing up to be a man you know that's something i don't i think it's massively
2: important and i also think it's important living in britain being black if i'm frank with you because once again we are a minority so within your minority you would like enough role models or enough men to stand up for the rest of the generation if you like so my dad you know he two parents came to england from jamaica after the war like most people you know, invited to help the country build itself. And his mother did really well. My grandma owned her own house. And, you know, she went off to be a school teacher afterwards. My dad now decided to be uh, somebody who decided that he would commit crime. It's not that he came from, you know, the worst surroundings. He did have an option. The problem that he did have, his dad was violent. So when he was at home, his dad would lash out, you know, and he would, he's the oldest so he got the brunt of the beating Mm -hmm. so he left home pretty early 13 years old and he lived in Heath, and he moved to Brixton with a few of his friends and Brixton wasn't the place for my dad to be in the 80s and the 90s because Jamaicans came over and crime was the number one thing that was going on and Mm -hmm. he was a big part of it.
1: That was the Yardie gangsters. That was the the Yardie gangsters and
2: my dad obviously wanted a sense of belonging like a lot of people want a sense of belonging to something but in his you know membership or association if you like he ended up doing a lot of prison sentences himself he ended up having no lack of education or a lack of education mm. if you like he ended up having not a lot of opportunities and options when he came out you know the only legitimate thing I remember my dad doing was being a bricklayer I can't think of anything else to mind that my dad's done to, to anything legit but I know a thousand things he's done that are not legit you know mm. the violence he's caused the chaos he's caused and For me, as somebody who has their own child now, and a boy as well, who's four, I spend so much time with my son taking him places like the zoo and, you know, I never got to do horse riding, but there's a place in Brixton that does it now. So I'm (laughs) down there, (laughs) you know what I mean? They've got it on the estate. We're going to get out there and do it. So, you know, my kid is now living a life and seeing things that I never got to. I don't remember my dad taking me anywhere. He's four. And I'm doing it now at four. My dad never even took me to the common to play football. Mm. So when you look back on things and you think you were absent, but when you were present, you were more interested in committing crime and, you know, bringing chaos to my mum's front door. The amount of times I've seen police come to my front door as a kid from a dad, Mm. by the time I've got older, this is normal.
1: What are the sort of emotions and the feelings that then are sort of conjured up in you and maybe other boys that are going through the same thing when you're sort of on that cusp of crime, you've got a dad that's now gone, you realise your mum's at work. How much do you think you consciously compute what's going on and how much upset do you actually feel at the time? Because I think when you're growing up, there's so many other things going on in your head, isn't there? And you're learning about life, you know. Were you conscious of the fact that you were going through a hard time? Were you angry and did you realise you were angry?
2: Yeah, most definitely you're angry. You know you're angry. You'd probably... I can't speak for everybody else, but I know for my personal self, I resented my dad a lot. And I felt like I had to be... The man at such a young age, because it's remarkable that I have an older brother. He's not that much older. He's only 21 months older than me, but he never committed crime once. He's very timid. He was affected deeply by how my dad would hit us when we were young. The Mm -hmm. neglect of emotionally that we never had. The fact that it was dysfunctional and we had a parent who was going to prison, coming back out and was never around. Lack of money. Then we had anything that we wanted. Then we didn't. These things, I think, affect different people in different ways. So as my brother was timid and took it on further in his life, as it's really affected him like that, I was the opposite. I was waiting to get outside to be as angry as my dad was. And I felt like the only way I'm going to be a man and help my mum out is to commit crime because that's what I've been shown to do. And the reason why I say, you know, you're angry and you're pent up with such frustration is because you've got other young men saying the same thing oh my right. dad's not around either.
1: And, that is, and that's literally what people Th- that's, say.
2: That's, that's, that's normal talk for us every day. And I'm 12. That's a 21 year old now saying, oh my dad's not around, don't worry about it, he ain't been around for 10 years. We'll get on with it. This is what we do. You've got to be your own man. This is how you be a man. So now all of a sudden you've got a 21 year old telling you being a man is actually beating people up. Being a man mm-hmm. is having no fear to commit robbery. Being a man is actually having no fear to carry a gun <laughs> and sell drugs. Actually being a man is being responsible and being able to be open and cry. These are things that our dads didn't say to us. So we're only gonna now go forward with the mindset of the other men that you've got around you or boys that you've got around you. And I think that's where, for me, it was emotional because when I went to prison and was not around these people, I longed to see my dad come to visit me. He never came. Mm. That's something that's very small, but. I never it's had a visit. It's
1: not very small. That's pretty big. But, but I
2: why I say it's very small in the sense of it's just a visit. So it's kind of small for him to do in the sense that he should have done that. It's just a visit for that. him to do, you know. And, and I, he was
1: around. He, like he was in London. He's in
2: London, you know, mm. and I was in places. I felt him. Yeah. Felt him's four stops from Clapham Junction. Right. And then a bus up the road. It's not that far. I visit in early every week and I've got young people to see in there. If it was my child, I would have been there. Mm. Equally. I also feel like that was the time for him to sit me down on that table and say, Look, no, what you're doing is wrong. And mm. as a man, this is what you can do. Maybe I can get you a job. He never fought for me. He never, you know,
1: yeah.
2: thought, Oh, let me get my, my child an opportunity. And I think that's very missing nowadays.
1: That's, yeah. But do you ever then jump to thinking of your dad as a young boy being of beaten up and thinking of him as a victim, perhaps? Of course,
2: of course. And that's why I first said, you know, as his dad was very violent to him and he had the neglect from his own family and then was obviously looking for, you know, some sort of membership or association with people that were doing bad stuff. I get, I get, he basically, I followed the same path he did, Mm -hmm. but why I have big reservations is because I'm only 28 and Mm -hmm. I've realized this now already and my son's four. Yeah. When was, you know, at what point do we actually say, oh, hold on a minute, this is your child and you are old enough now to realise. And I
1: think this is what we all grapple with so much, isn't it? It's like, why have you made it? Like, why? what was it about you? And is it just character? Because we're all trying to fix all these problems that I think are probably too big for us all to fix on us, whether it's a political level or a societal level. You know, it's down to the individual, isn't it? As you say, your brother's so different. And your dad clearly couldn't access that, part of himself to be a good dad. He just didn't know how. And you somehow have looked at your life and gone, right, I'm going to change this. But it takes someone who's quite emotionally intelligent and that's different to, you know, general intelligence to be emotionally intelligent. To say, I'm going to break this cycle and I'm not going to be that dad to my son.
2: Well, I'm very lucky that I um I did a little bit of neuro-linguistic programming while I was in prison too on a Chrysler's course. Oh, yeah, And it literally changed my entire life. And I think that is a big thing. I think what, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize is that sometimes we can actually change everything, but we can't do it at once. That's the problem. So sometimes we start off and we've changed something, but by the end, we've also had a relapse. <laughs> and I've had many relapses, yeah. trust me. But one thing that stuck with me is that actually you are in control of self. I never knew this before. You know, I, I was adhering to be part of my peers. I just wanted to be part of what that. I never knew my own self. I never knew that actually, oh, you do need to have a little cry here. You're quite <laughs> upset that your dad hasn't seen you. It's got nothing to do with anybody yeah, else. You're a, this little is bit your, vulnerable. you're a little bit vulnerable here, you know. And for me, it was also things like, what's your five-year plan? And my five-year plan at the time was to have, a, you know, my dad in my life and to reconnect with my mother because I looked at it as that would be strength for me. You know, mm. that good family bonds would provide strength. Equally knowing that one cannot force another person to feel and act a certain way. All one can do is be the best person they can be. And I say that because, you know, four years ago, I enrolled in university and I was proud. I I literally ran home and told everybody on my, and you're the first person around here to go to university. And I was rubbing my hands because what I found funny was I got my A-levels in prison. And I thought I might (laughs) as well put them to use. And this was years later. But I went and told my dad and his response was, oh, really? Are you really going to go and complete that? That's a bit long. Why are you going to do that? You're going to be broke. You're going to have no money. Where are you going to live? I'm not going to help you with rent. I'm not. And I just sat there bemused and I thought, well, still, I'm looking for his uh, appreciation and I can get nothing. That was a real big kick in the teeth. And I, that was only a few years ago for mm. me. And since then, I've not been able to share anything with my dad, anything literally I've met the queen and you know special recommendation for what I'm doing and I literally went home and told everyone about that too and printed <laughs> off pictures and I thought I'd tell me dad and then I thought well oh, there's no point and that's not a nice way to feel no. you know and I think sometimes as a young boy growing up you should always look for that hero in your dad if you haven't got it in anybody else and I can't blame him for me committing you know crime on the scale that I have because at some point I got to 18 and I was my own man mm. but I think he's had a massive part in in my journey and as you said I, I managed to actually interpretate my life in a way where I don't want to be him mm. and I want to do good things that don't remind me of him and I'm going to try and do as much as I can so I think if people can take that and use it in that way it's good but I also know not everyone can do that and some people actually do end up kind of coming back inside themselves
1: yeah so you mentioned you did a neuro-linguistic course. What is that and how exactly did it help you?
2: Um, the course is run by uh, people called Chrysalis. I think if I remember right, the guy, guy's name was David Atropo. And I was literally the second course he ever did of this Chrysalis. So it was quite a quite a big thing. But it was that you could remap your own brain in the sense of your ideals, your ideology what you felt was important to you and how you could get a grasp of yourself. And for somebody who had quite a cloudy, blurry life at the time, trauma, violence, I needed actually that pause to actually take on, actually, there's a task, challenge your brain. Not just challenge your brain with, oh, maths and arithmetic. No, actually look inside yourself emotionally, try to build your emotional intelligence. And I never knew what emotional intelligence was at all until I did this. And it was a step-by-step thing over... 12 weeks. So it wasn't forever. It was a quick, short, sharp shock. But what it did, it imprinted uh, a five-year plan in which your brain could see that actually I'm going to develop. I'm developing to a better person, maybe a father, maybe a more responsible person in society. Could I be somebody to hold public office? Am I somebody who's got their emotions in check when I actually am angry? When I'm angry, what are my emotions? Actually, programming your brain to feel... Less anxiety to feel calmer. How do you take anxiety down in yourself? What do you do? I had no clue about any of this stuff. <laughs> you know, so that process for me, and equally, I tell you what was very profound. I only went in there with people who were called Section 91. So you had to have longer than three and a half years. You had to be someone that probably committed a violent offense. So most of us that were in there on week one, by week three, you could hear a pin drop. There were tears there were sniffles there were wows there was dave i'm not going to lie to you this is changing my life and it was a consensus between all of us at the same time so i would like to say all of you know i've never really liked to come out of prison and fraternize with the people but there were 12 men on that course i talked to two of them now who have never offended since they were released i did unfortunately but they didn't and they were a bit older than me and we still talk about it now Just just knowing. And of course, body language, once again, is also big with this. Eye language, you know, where your eyes go, communicate how you think, where it goes to what corner when you're thinking, when you're daydreaming. This is just reading someone else's body language. So I was actually tooled up on how to read someone's body language. Actively listening, you know, just simply nodding to someone when they're talking to you is a very good thing to do rather than looking into space, as I used to do when I was younger. Huh? What's he going on about? Now I'm actively listening, using your hands Little things that actually, your tone of voice, when you deliver something, keeps your heart rate to a certain level sometimes. more agitated, more, Even if it's passion <laughs> that you're doing it with, your heart starts to... So, you know, neurolinguistic programming for me, that course, that, that three months, literally doing it inside a prison, inside a YY as well, set me up so well for even the last time I ever was in prison. Which was pentonville and only doing 16 days recall for not making my meetings with probation i thought about that nlp and i thought when you come out remember your five-year plan you can change there will be a time so that was profound for me literally i think that was the single greatest thing apart from getting G and a levels in prison that i'd ever experienced it's fantastic
1: you mentioned the word hero and i think And obviously role models in sort of real life. And I'm not talking about, you know, sort of celebrities or sort of anyone like that. Did you, have you kind of appointed yourself, if you like, your own role models? Who do you look to in your life that you kind of go, yeah, I want to be that guy? Or do you do that at all?
2: No, I definitely do now. I think in the last year and a half, two years, I found a lot of role models. And um, I think before I named them. And I won't name everyone. I'll just name one because other people will be well upset <laughs> like, if I leave them out. But um, what I will say is very profound. The life I've come from, I find that I find people who have never experienced my life at all. But they're so open and welcoming. And for me, I think that changes the whole narrative on society. Because what a lot of people don't understand is I'm a black kid with gold teeth in my mouth. (laughs) Right now, I've got a lovely voice on because I've actually learned to speak like so. (laughs) You know what I mean? I do speeches all the time. But when I actually, you know, want to relax tonight and put my tracksuit on, pop down to the gym. And if it starts to rain and I put my hood on, people will cross the road from me. They will cross the road from me. And I'll be looking and I'll just be simply walking past someone. They'll see me. They'll put their phone like they'll literally look at me and they're doing it and mm. it's an unconscious thing they don't know that they d- they don't know how bad they make me feel but I also realise, oh you used to be a little guy who would mainly yeah. actually you know this would be the prime for you to commit a crime and I know crime is on the rise I know people are not thinking it's always a black thing I know people are not always thinking it's a kid in a hoodie it's just crime in general is on the rise so of course you know I, I look at myself and I point myself heroes and but I also love the fact that I can connect with people in society who are able to look past that and able to say, actually, Mr. Williams, we'll will base you on merit. You do some good stuff. You're, mm. You've are you got some value to add to the cause. We've got a table. We want you to bring something to it. And just sitting around, i.e., you know, this morning I was able to go to the House of Lords to have breakfast. You got Lord Michael Hastings. is absolutely incredible. He's changed my life. I've been to... Uh, different parts of the world talking about criminal justice talking about my story I've been to Africa I've been to parts in America this is unbelievable I'm Mm -hmm. going to Spain in a month's time because I've just literally met somebody on Twitter you know somebody's (laughs) reached out to me and said sir I think you're doing great stuff would you like to come to Spain and bring young people we want to see them we want to help them change their lives we Mm -hmm. feel like what's happening with the knife crime stuff is quite a big thing so of course I'm able to appoint myself heroes, and I also someone else, Amanda Platell, who writes her Daily Mail. She's absolutely outstanding because once again, a Daily Mail writer and good old me. People wouldn't think that we would mix and be friends, but we really are. And I was able to meet her um, at a drinks that I, a reception that I was at. And f- once again, this is somebody who asked a few questions. I asked a few questions, and before you know it, now we're we're, we're helping each other in in way of giving each other opportunities mm. and. That is breaking down barriers in society. That is what we really want to see everybody do. If I had a dream, it would be for every sort of person in prison now to be able to meet somebody who is totally different from them and just to sit down and have a talk and for us to realise how great things can be.
1: Absolutely. We have just recorded a podcast um, where we were discussing, Satnam Sangira, and I were discussing the role of the media when it comes to all these things. And it's interesting you bring up the Daily Mail because we were talking about, well, we were talking about TV, radio, print media, social media, so we sort of had a uh, a gallop around the houses on that. From your point of view, how powerful and how much of a force for good or bad do you think the media is in their sort of portrayal of a young black man in London today? Because of course it's very, um, it's talked about all the time. Another young black guy's been stabbed. You know, what What are your views on where the media fit in here and how could they be better?
2: Well, without putting such a... Uh, I like to try and stay impartial, but I think some, <laughs> okay. things, some things are known nationally. You know, The Guardian is going to write about a young black man very different from the Daily Mail. And yeah. it's as simple as that. Yeah. And I think it comes down to readership, to be quite honest. I think some people, you know may not want to hear that actually a lot of adverse childhood experiences have gone on to these young people before they've gone on to do some horrible things. Because actually what they want to hear is someone's been stabbed and they're dead now. It's, It's a bit of a fact. But then I think equally, it depends on how they want to portray it. You've got people uh, like LBC sometimes who I think sometimes, oh, that's a bit shocking when you say certain things about knife crime. I feel really not informed these people. And then you get, you know, wonderful people like Andrew Pierce, who's a presenter in LBC, who invited me on. So I I can't, you know, beg to differ because somebody's asked me to come on and explain the story and and talk about it. So if people are going to be impartial like that, then I think that's fantastic journalism. Mm. You report the story in whatever way you want, but then you get the people who are immersed in it Mm. to give you real life, Uh, events and accounts so that the nation can hear and then everybody's in a bit more of an informed decision to make a bit more of a better 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 argument for themselves because when you wake up and hear the BBC it was January the 1st I remember 2018 oh four black males have been stabbed in four different incidents around London that is not great to wake up to on your New Year's Day.
1: Absolutely how do you feel about um you know we're talking about race here, obviously. How do you feel about sort of white people in general commenting on the lives of young black men? I don't really mean that as a really inflammatory comment, but I always try and put myself in the shoes of the minority. So I go, right, well, I'm a white female. If I had lots of black men trying to talk about my life growing up as a white female, They wouldn't know what they're talking about. How do you feel about that?
2: Well, once again, I think it's the same as the media thing. So I think it depends who is saying it. You know, when I think it's sometimes politicians who are very, you know, 25 year seasoned veterans who have been in the same constituency since God knows when commenting on knife crime in the middle of London, it's ludicrous to be quite frank. Ludicrous! I think they should keep their opinions to themselves. And I think they should worry about what's going on in their constituencies and represent their people properly because we have MPs in London. And to be quite frank, everyone's got the same story. And the same story is that we've got a constituency with young black men in it who we really need to help. And there are different ways that we need to go about it rather than labeling and demonizing people. Secondly, I equally think anybody is allowed to talk about any situation. But then again, it, once again, it's what your agenda is. If you've got one white fella who wants to talk about knife crime, more than welcome to. But let's let's invite the people who also live this too to the mm. table. I think that's the biggest problem, representation. When we hear knife crime being spoke about, whether it's on radio, whether it's on the news, whether it's in a newspaper. How many times have a black person said that or writ that? Mm. How many opinions have you got from me? You know, I'm good old Noel Williams and I'm very thankful for LBC having me. Trust me, I'm willing to come back any time. But there hasn't been many other me's, and that's only a one off. You know, for instance, I think a lot of things get hyped up. Notting Hill Carnival. Everybody said, oh, there's going to be murders there. This is a black event. We need to shut it down. We need to stop it. Well, more people died at Glastonbury from drug overdoses over the last 20 years. How about that?
1: Yeah. And more women have been killed in London in the last year due to domestic violence. violence compared to young black men. men.
2: So I think sometimes it's easy to talk about a situation to inflame it and get your you know your constituents thinking, oh, God, my MP said he's going to do some stuff about this. Let's vote for him. But, you know, once again, if uh, a, a young white woman was in the middle of London and she had some um, adverse situations that she was going through, um, I would hope that I could speak about that in the sense of representing her. But I would never then start thinking, oh, actually, let me speak about it. Like, I am this person and I am the voice. This is what's going to be said. Yeah. This is what actually it is. No, unless I've gone to ask somebody, I wouldn't dare hazard a guest to think this is what it is. And, you know, come on social media, media or the TV or whatever and say, these black kids in the middle of zone four, you know, we shouldn't let them up to Oxford Street to cause trouble, keep them where they are. Uh, It's the mayor of London's fault. We're not gonna help him out either. And he's doing nothing. I don't think he's doing enough, but I think he's doing something.
1: But to go back to what the root of the problem seems to be here from what you said, it's the lack of a dad. How is a politician? How is anyone meant to fill that gap?
2: Um, I wouldn't just say lack of a dad. I say it's lack of a dad. It's a lack of education, and it's also a lack of opportunity. You know, I'm not one to go in to talk about government cycles because I believe that, uh, the red team is as bad as the blue team, and the blue team's as bad as the yellow. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter who's in there. They've yeah. all got great things that are going to happen and they've all got things that we're all going to dislike. What I think is funny is the problems stay the same. Mm. So, you know, 10 years ago when youth clubs were really open and youth provisions were quite high and connections and all these things were happening, we still had violence, we still had knife crime, but it just wasn't to this level. Mm. We still had fatherless families. But the difference was you could go to Connections and find that support. You could go and get signposted to have free counselling. You know, as we know, it's very expensive to have any form of former in-truths counselling. Mm. I remember having it very luckily for 21 months paid for by somebody. Literally changed my life mm. because it was paid for. And I was allowed two hours a week. When I went to my NHS doctor and, you know, wanted to inquire about it beforehand, he said to me, oh, we can't do that. So once again, if if we don't have the provisions in place to actually directly affect somebody who's got trauma, directly affect somebody who doesn't have a dad around, but actually you've come to youth club after school. It's four o'clock now. Mm-hmm. You're going to leave youth club at eight. Your mum's going to be back at home. She knows where you've been. Your mum has a stake in the youth club because we knew all of our youth workers. They were like our mums. People's ears would get rang. There was yeah. nothing bad happening. Yeah. In the bit. It felt like a community. Yeah. Now you feel a bit lawless. And if I'm honest with you, gentrification is is kind of whacked people as well mm. because I feel like now people don't feel like they have a standing in a lot of their own communities. Yeah, and their they're being community sort of edged out. They're being edged out. Their yeah. communities are changing. And I think that that as well is is kind of exacerbated the situation that we see now. Yeah.
1: And as you say, you know, I think there'll always be rage. There'll always be anger. Kids growing up, even if you don't have anything to be angry about, you find a reason to be angry about something or you hate your parents, but you're not really sure why. But I think it's, um, as you say, it's channeling the rage, the anger and allowing people a place to go to explore that rage, that anger, to do something else. Because, of course, if there isn't something else, the violence will clearly be directed towards people
2: indeed and then me just go back to the same example I gave you when I was 12 leaving school at three if we don't have anything else they are going to go with the older kids unfortunately what we have now is terrible in my day it was local community based and at least we had community policing and we knew our police pc Mm. shepherd he was lovely we knew him he knew us it was cat and mouse it was lovely (laughs) you knew what was going on you know nowadays you don't know your local police they come around and enforcement is horrible i remember myself this year recording that i've been stopped and searched 42 times this year year, me i'm a law-abiding citizen but yet I i get stopped and searched all the time i was yesterday having a board meeting in Scotland Yard as I'm on a board in Scotland Yard and a policeman went past me and said, Mr. Williams, sir. I said, where do I know you from? He said, I'm from your borough. It's lovely to see this change. And I felt warm. Yeah. It's the first time in a long time where I felt actually somebody has looked at me as Mr. Williams rather than the little so-and-so from around the corner. Yeah, And I think that's also a very important thing when we're talking about how we're going to go forward because we've got county lines happening now. Kids are 13, 14, 15, not in school. They're being sent home with a letter saying they're kicked out. And you've got a 21-year-old now willing to send them to somewhere like Manchester. The danger of that, for them to sit in a house with a drug user at the age of 14. I, didn't, I wasn't exposed to that, very luckily, and I was still exposed to a lot of violence. I cannot imagine what a 14-year-old has to deal with today whose dad's gone to prison, whose mum's just at home working, who's been kicked out of school, whose mum doesn't know where they are. They've got a knife on them because they feel like they might be in trouble if they see anyone in their local area. And they're being told right now, oh, do you know what? I can give you 100 quid if you want. Mm. 100 quid a day. A day? To do what? I'm gone. What they don't know is they're being exploited And when they actually go to prison, they've got a criminal record now. And that guy that sent you is never going to be touched. He's never going to be seen. And he doesn't care for you. Such a dire situation. So as you've just quoted yourself, without having these things, these provisions in place, we've seen now what the repercussions to this are.
1: On the subject of drugs, um, I was at a policing conference the other day and it was quite interesting. And this is um, probably, I'm not sure it's a controversial point, but it's an uncomfortable point that... When it comes to drugs and the drug economy and people read papers and go, it's disgraceful, you know, all these drugs, oh, you know. People who take drugs on a recreational basis, who might not have a drug problem, but they go to the parties, they go to the festivals, they buy their drugs. They're part of the economy, right? What would you say about sort of that middle-class party entertainment drug use and where it fits into? Because we always hear about the drug dealers and the bad guys and the county lines, but people tend to miss out that big white elephant in the middle, which is if people stopped taking drugs and buying drugs for their parties, things might be different. Um,
2: well, I've got my own sort of political line that I think when it comes to drugs. <laughs> and I'm very, I'm very tetchy with it because I feel that, Of course, if there is a need, people are going to supply that need and that's always going to happen. But what I would say is, of course, you've got the happy-go-lucky festival goer. You know, she's, you know, working all month and doesn't touch drugs at all, has a glass of wine with her girls and loves a bit of Prosecco, I'm sure. But (laughs) she's going raving at the end of the month. She's going to a festival. She wants to enjoy herself. She's going to do that. The problem that we have is that in society, I think people look for an escape and drugs is just an escape to the middle class sort of folk. Even the the people who are very highly on cocaine, it's known that a lot of bankers and a lot of jobs where you've got to be working for a long time and it's high pressured. People do it as a coping mechanism. So I think I'm fully with you. I think if those people stopped, then we would actually have an economy that goes down because let's be honest, the people that are supplying these drugs are still these kids, are still the people from certain walks of life who actually... We do demonize and they're making an incredibly lot of money from this. This is another problem. Uh, It's not like people now are making small money. They're making shed loads. And the odd kid from down the road can make shed loads of just selling cocaine to a few people. Yeah, and we don't demonize
1: the people who are taking the coke in the city because it sort of seems glamorous. Not just the city, of course, you know, Mm. I'm Mm. sort of generally speaking they mm. don't get demonized mm. the glamorous cocaine snorters at parties mm.
2: and i tell you why though i i think unbelievably and i i don't know i don't have the actual you know right research for this but i would also feel that the people who would be reporting on these people are also from the middle class so i'm not alleging that they're on drugs at all but i'm alleging that maybe they think that that's fine because that's just how the middle class are so they're not going to report on their friends and their parties and the bankers taking the coat because, oh, no, that's just how we do things. And, you know, that's how it is in the city. But it's not, you know, these people from Zone 4, that's not how we live. So we've definitely got a report on them. Mm. I think it's a bit of double standards, if I'm honest, Mm. you know, because equally we do talk about the drugs and stuff. But if I can just quickly go on to something like sexual exploitation and we think about what was going on in Rotherham, you know, those women are absolutely heroes, they're survivors. I've met some of them. I'm very fortunate to have met some of them myself doing the work that I do. And when it's reported, it's reported that Asian men in the community Pakistani and that's it. As it should be, because that's what they are. But equally, we don't really hear any other stories about Pakistani men in this country at all. Even though forced marriage is very big, domestic violence is extremely high, honour killings is high. These These things are high as well. So I think sometimes there's a remit where, actually, if it's a type of story, then we can report it. But if not, let's keep it quiet. So, you know, if a politician now has any form of scandal, they'll they'll report it, they'll they'll tell you all about it, you know. But nowadays, it seems to be like, oh, every once in a while, a politician has scandal, so we'll talk about it. But we won't go as far as to do anything else. I think there's so much double standards in the way we report stuff that some people are allowed to be labelled and demonised also because society sees it that way Mm. if we all had a shift and we thought actually as a society this is not right the kids that are dying on the street and going up to the county lines the people that are older than them are actually selling drugs to the people in the city this is a big business this isn't small look at it as a family there is a hierarchy there is a tree let's actually do something let's have a campaign let's let's do it as as a public health model all together let's go forward It'd be fantastic. Mm. I know I'm kind of dreaming right now. Wow. But in an ideal world... Got to start somewhere. Yeah, why couldn't papers get behind that campaign? You know, when 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 unfortunately the young man, James Bolger, was murdered, we was in uproar as a country. We was. The legal age of criminal responsibility was changed. We did something. We acted. We need to do the same now. Mm. This is exactly the same. Kids are dying every day. I think we're worse than New York, they said. That's that's a scary statistic. Yeah, You know, so... As I said from the beginning, there is one or two things. But when it comes to the drug issue, unless we're all going to do it together, I feel like these double standards are still going to last and um, not much action is going to be taken on it yeah, at all.
1: and it's uncomfortable. But I guess that's where everyone has to do a bit of soul searching and, and ask themselves what part do they individually have to play in that big picture. Um, you've served time in youth offenders institute or maybe a couple can you tell me what life is like in the youth offenders institutes I think it was only last year that the chief inspector of prisons deemed every single youth offenders institute in this country unsafe which is really appalling however there there is some really great work that goes on inside and there's some really great people that work on the inside so can you sort of paint a picture for our listeners as to what our youth offenders institutes are actually like
2: well in my I'm very you know fortunate I had to think because I I haven't been to a youth offenders institution for 10 years.
1: Right.
2: So ten and lot's years, changed. A lot's <laughs> changed. You know, 10 years ago, as I said, there was more staff. Um, there was an onus on education rather than containment and enforcement. Um, there wasn't this massive sway of gangs that we see now. There wasn't this massive sway of youth violence that we see now, to be quite frank. I wouldn't go as far as to say it was therapeutic or holistic approaches, not at all. It was still, you know, young offenders institution. But as I said, you had a education as the basis. You woke up in the morning, you tidied your bed, you mocked your floor, discipline was ensued. You'd come out in the morning. But remember, you also had a choice. What do you want to do for education? Nothing was put on you. Whereas now kids are locked up for 18 hours a day. There's nothing they can do about it. We were never locked up like that. We were let out and we were literally locked up. In little parts of the day, lunchtime, nighttime. So I think giving uh, at that time, and I've been to Castington Park. I've been around the country at the time to different YOIs. and they were all quite similar. You know, it was it was educational based, and once again, we achieved things. There was more vocational courses to do as well, which you know, when you're a young man, mm. sometimes when you can't read them right, and you go in a class with your friends, you don't really want them to know you can't read them right. So you're like, oh, I want to go bricklaying. Right. Like, I want to do electricians. I want to do, but it's still a skill. And it's still something for you to be proud of.
1: Did you feel safe?
2: N- no, I don't th- ever think why have been safe because I think one thing is that people have to always, you know. And I want your listeners to always know they are children. We are still children, you know. We're under eighteen, and a lot of people look at you as you're a criminal. All this time we've been talking about me, and you know, and going to prison for that five years. I'm still a child, you know. I've only committed to offenses over the age of 18 so as you could imagine most of my bad stuff in life came at a young age when you're locked up in prison with other kids and a lot of these kids unfortunately were young care leavers <laughs> I wasn't and I thought my life was hard some of them have got some real problems and all they've known is to lash out mm-hmm. so when they're running at a guy like me and all I know is violence but well, we're gonna fight and we mean within fighting. the
1: youth vendors Institute. yeah i mean within so, yeah. the Youth
2: Vendors institute and this could be something as small as eight of us in a class the teachers asked somebody to read something he can't read it and now everyone's taking the mickey out of him that's not going to last more than a minute because he doesn't want the mickey to be taken out of him and he's going to lash out now all of a sudden there's three of us fighting one we're stamping on his head it's become extreme violence because chairs are being thrown the teacher's trying to break it up they're going to get whacked too because once again we don't realize that actually that's an adult. A teacher's got nothing to do with this. All now that's happened is violent. And all of us are used to just hitting and being violent. So my lovely gold teeth that I've got in my mouth, I'll give you a short story. I was in Castington, YOY, which is very high up in the country, right next to like, near the Scottish border, to be quite frank. I think it's the last YOY in England. <laughs> and um, I was the only black kid in there. And I remember my first day, they all just called me London. That was it. He's called London because he's a black kid from London. And I remember a kid saying to me, oh, I'm next on the pool table, but I'd put my name down before him. And as you know, in a while, if somebody says they're next, I'm next. And I don't want to be seen to be get bullied. So I'm definitely going to have to take that pool cue now. So I took the pool cue off him and I proceeded to, you know, bend down and take my opening shot. Little did I know he took pool, pool balls, two pool balls off that table and put them in a sock and literally whacked me in my mouth hence why I've got the lovely gold teeth in my mouth and stitches still in there years upon years later. That's the sort of violence that we was literally open to. And Mm -hmm. I was only 15 years old, but we're now hitting someone with two pool balls in a sock. If he'd hit me in my head, I could have died.
1: Mm.
2: You know, I was knocked out cold. This, how can you feel safe in such places?
1: And it's quite interesting, isn't it? To go back to the classroom, that boy who was being bullied for not being able to read or write you know, that's shame, isn't it? And that's how he felt. And then the only way he knew how to react was violence. And then, of course, he would have probably been taken down the block. I don't know. Do they have segregation? Yeah, we yeah, were yeah, all taken
2: down there. Yeah. yeah.
1: And then it's interesting because then and then you're punished for feeling. I mean, I know it's, it's more the behavior than the feeling, but it's also complicated, isn't it? Because what do you do if someone is violent? They have to realize there's consequences to their actions. But... They haven't been given any tools to sort of say, right, I can either hit someone in in their face or get some pool balls and put them in a sock and smash someone's teeth out, or I can do something else. It's like people aren't taught the something else.
2: I, I, I fully agree with you. And I tell you, which is very profound in this story, kind of why I gave it to you, was that there was an officer called Lisa Coleman. She was unbelievable, a remarkable officer. As you said, there's some remarkable people that do work in there, and I do agree. And there was a governor called Mr. Murray and another man called Derek Dudley, and they were, all three of them were lovely because we were the real troublemakers. So after this situation happened, they, you know, come down and had a word of us. And as you said, he was punished, as we all were. We had to stay down there for six days, all together. But what was funny was afterwards, they did a lot of like you know mediation because what we did find out of it was exactly what you said. In his mitigation, so when he was having an adjudication inside the prison, he actually said, well, I can't read. And they were taking the mickey out of me. How do, what do you want me to do? How do you expect me to feel? In him saying that, they then said to us, well, you're not supposed to be doing that to people. If people have come here to get an education, started to allow us to realise, oh, this is not what we should have been doing to him in the first place. Actually, education is for people to come and get an education. And if we want to be silly, then we can wait back on the wing because what we really should be doing is get an education. And that time I couldn't read, as I said to you. Mm-hmm. I just kept it quiet myself. So I was slightly embarrassed for him anyway. Mm-hmm. So it was profound that you could come and have that open talk. And literally the next week after that we'd gone back to education with the same teacher and she was willing to teach us again like she was proper even though she had a chair thrown at her and everything and we never had a problem again and like Mm. like I said I spent 21 months there and I managed to get GCSEs and A levels from that day so once again don't get me wrong I had many other problems after that and it wasn't safe let me be frank with you I can tell you horror stories about why why like you know hot water sugar and honey in in people's faces and seeing people's faces burn this isn't safe it, it can't be safe. People in a cell, you know, two or three people beating one person up at one time. And the reason why I think the Chief Inspector of Prisons has been such, you know, hard ass, if you like, about it, and I'm very happy as Mr. Glock, because we are children. These are places where children are living. Let's be honest, people, you know, Felton, when I went to Felton, the people were making knives. I'm not gonna lie. First time I've been to prison, I was like, I'm kind of scared. What is going on in here? This mm. is crazy. Every day, a cell bell in Felton, there's no doubt an alarm. You're hearing about eight or nine a day. You're just seeing officers run. That's not good for your own health because you know, hold on a minute, things are going on here. Mm. Another thing as well is not that it's just safe. And another that he highlighted is it, a lot of bullying going on. So even though it might not be outright violence that you've seen, Do you know how much young people are self-harming in there? People are being bullied. People, you know, people are now thinking to themselves, oh, I've gone to prison. You didn't send anyone's kid to prison to be bullied or for them to feel like I want to take my own life. We actually sent them there to learn a lesson. And if it's why, why, you definitely sent them there for a a minimum short shock of punishment and so that they can come out and reform themselves. Now we've got people actually, not just the adult establishment, in the young people's establishment, Mm. you know, wanting to commit suicide. In my day, it was, I'm sure there were people, but it was very low. And it was built on an enrichment and activity. And, you know, yeah. we came out and we smiled. I can say some of my greatest days were in what? Yeah. Now when you ask kids, when I mentor my young people, they say to me, I'll tell you what, no, I'm, I'm literally, I'm in here. I'm fighting for my life. I'm having to stay alive. I, I, I want to go to education. I want to be good. They're not letting me off the wing. It's all about now containing these kids. Mm, mm. We're not going to educate any of them because as soon as they come off, this is what's happening. And as I said, if you've got lack of staff, then you've got to do something. Something has to budge.
1: Yeah. There's um, a push now, isn't there? And I think they're being built, the secure schools. What's your opinion on the secure school? Because I suppose from my point of view, I've never spent much time working in the youth estate. So, you know, I don't know a huge amount about it, but, You've painted a picture of kids who can't sit in classrooms and don't do well at school. So we're building a school to lock people into the place that they're scared of. I mean, that's what it seems like to me. Maybe I've got it wrong. What do you know about them, and how do you feel about oh, them?
2: I feel absolutely optimistic and very happy oh, about them. Good. Good. <laughs> I have had a fantastic input with YJB okay. on this. They have had many consultations with myself and other people, and I'm very happy <laughs> with Mr. Taylor it. and stuff so, because I think. W- I know from the outside, I was like, I was very sceptical. When I first heard of them, I said, oh no, that's never going to work. Yeah. A secure school. Well,
1: it's c- the terminology the- a lot of the time that I think is the problem. It,
2: it kind of sets people up wrong. And I think that actually we do need to be selling this to society. That there are a great deal of people that need to know that really it's around holistic approaches. And I think people should have just called them secure educational centres. Well, why c- why like can't that.
1: we call places you know something softer because i feel a lot of the terminology is to appease the readers maybe of tabloid newspapers and actually why why couldn't you call it a safe place it can still do the same Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. but of course that wouldn't fly Mm -hmm. in the media would Mm -hmm. it Mm
2: -hmm. i think a lot of uh, box ticking to make sure as you just said uh, the media box gets ticked but i think the crux of it and and what it is in its entirety is good, and I think from both. Can you explain sides, what it is. Yeah, indeed. Um, basically, it would be uh, a school, the school of thought would be that education would be first. So a young person would arrive in uh, uh, the establishment per se, and the first thing they'd be asked is, what they want to do, how they feel, where they want to go from here how they want to be supported from going from here. Also, education is knowing that actually you've committed a crime. You need to be responsible. You need to take responsibility. What is responsibility? It, it has not just maths and English. I think a lot of people are, are probably head up in the fact it says education. Yeah. But it's also life skills. Right. The vocational side of it as well. you know.
1: And as you said, the knowing self, because how can you go on to be academically well even just to read and write forget sort of going on to get degrees but you have to know yourself and understand yourself don't you first before you can really build further
2: most definitely and I think when you actually have somewhere where you're going to be having therapeutic practices horticulture and certain things going on for those young people and drama giving them a space to be able to know themselves and um, during this time is very important and for me I think it's a turning point as I said education changed my life L- let's not be uh Silly and just say, Oh, it's all going to be great because it's clearly not. Yeah, and I, it's no I, I tell you, bullets. definitely not. And I tell you, one thing that I wasn't always um happy about would be that I don't think enough money has been poured into it at the moment. But you know what? To have any will to do it at all is very big. Yeah. So they're using the framework from an existing secure unit now. And then, you know, the only thing I'd say is, how do we get young people in there? What young people do we choose? Because to me, this is going to sound like such a great place. How comes my kid can't go there if my kid's been sent to prison and this is going to change his outcomes and his... So I think what people really should be looking to do is these should be pilots and it should be actually the gradual scheme in the end in the next 10 years that actually every place is like skeptical
1: side of me though on pilots is what we're gonna pilot to see whether a child should be treated nicely and educated <laughs> well, I, I agree, um, I agree <laughs> with you I, I,
2: I just think I think pilot was was the uh, the only way that um any form of traction may have been going forward. And I think sometimes... And of course, to get
1: money attached to something, you have to use the word pilot, when actually, as you say, these problems have existed for years and years and years, maybe even hundreds of years. We do not need a pilot to tell us that we need to treat people nicely, to rehabilitate them, to educate them. It's ludicrous. And I think that, you know, from what I know, which is little on this subject, that the secure schools, it's a regime, right? It's not... Yes, the physical building is important and they can be horrific or they can be architecturally nice. But at the end of the day, even if you're in a bad place, if the regime is good, what I've heard from so many people inside prison is that if the regime is good, you're going to do well. It's going to be a safer place.
2: Most definitely. And I've been very lucky to go and visit three uh, secure trading centres around the country and all young people said the same thing to me. Oh, we'd love this. Oh, we want this. We want We want the whole rating to check. They feel like right now it's all too much based on enforcement and authority and containment and punishment. Whereas I think young kids, they're dying for a space. As you said very earlier, and it was very well put that actually sometimes we just need a space to be able to be that person Whereas if you're in prison and you still haven't found that space and it's chaos and you're a child and a nice time, you know, happily come into one day and say, oh, what do you think of, you know, secure educational centers? Give me some input. And, you know, they're writing down things and they actually wanted a youth custody officer, which would be a special new role and very, very... Wonderfully, the YJB and the MOJ have gone about doing that. Mm. So I think that that, that alone they've, they've set up a new course that you have to go on. Mm. So once again, it's not just reinventing the world with the old guard, it's actually letting the people know who are going to staff this that actually these are the new approaches that need to happen. Yeah. This is best practice for mm. us now going on. It's a revolutionary shift, and I'm very happy to be part yeah, of it.
1: So credit where credit's due. Credit where
2: credit's <laughs> due. But equally, I agree with you on one side. Let's per se say the pilot doesn't go well and society say, oh, we haven't got an appetite for it and money gets pulled. Well, then we're just back in the right place. As we said, it's a pilot and it's not set in stone. Mm. So um, I'd like to be optimistic about it. And I'd like to think that actually these new approaches are going to help. Um, young people of all of the nation not just young people in the middle of London we can't be London centric because we've got a a good few kids up in the north you know and I go and see up in Leeds who need opportunities who are dying for these types of things who have lack of opportunity like people down in London do
1: and white kids get stabbed too um, I'm just gonna say that you can sometimes forget that if you read the papers down here
2: you know people forget the middle of England have 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 a band of of kids who have been forgotten seaside towns have a band of white kids that have been forgotten. And let's be frank here, there's exploitation happening there. You know, and a lot, I don't want to actually put out a group of people. Let me not say their nationality, but you could go to a place like uh, Jaywick, for instance, which I did my research on, and there is a group of people at a BP garage and a car wash who are literally, they've murdered a woman, cut out her tongue, she's been burnt, they're selling drugs. This is in a seaside town in the middle of England. So it happens everywhere, whether you're white or black. And we need to make sure we've got the things in place. My biggest thing is young people. Mm. You know, we need to make sure we've got the things in place to help those people. There's been new research found that actually a young person's brain isn't fully developed until they're 25. Mm. I can rightly concur with that. I really
1: can. <laughs> Some might argue even 45, but uh, you know, <laughs> that's who you're talking about? Um, no, I could talk to you forever and ever. And um, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up. But um, one last thing I wanted to ask you is, you said you're 28. What does the rest of Noel's life look like? <laughs> what, what are we going to be seeing from you over the next, well, hopefully you live a very long life, so over the next 40, 50 years?
2: I've, I've been saying for the last four years that I'm going to be the justice minister at some time. And I am. I don't know what political party I'm going to be aligned to. doesn't matter. To. Just it get really there. doesn't matter. Just get there. And I'll say this to everybody out there. Sometimes we need people who become the rose that grows through concrete. And I, I always base myself on that. And I base myself on that actually anything can change. But I will say I have to thank the lovely people in my life who have given me opportunities and chances. So if there's anyone listening and, you know, there's a project or there's young people you can help in any way, you know, please may you do so. Because I think that the wonderful people that's helped me in my life and the charities and the education I've got has literally been able to make sure that I'm not somebody who's going to go out and be a bad person in the world, but I can go and make an impact and a good point in people's lives. So I think 40 years from now, I'll be an accomplished man who has been the forefront of politics. Um, criminal justice and social justice would definitely be my remit. But then um, I want to be a university lecturer. Plain and simple, I want to change young people's lives and I think education is going to be the way I do it.
1: That's totally amazing. And you would most certainly be the first Justice Secretary with gold teeth. Definitely. (laughs) I think the country's got Uh, an
2: appetite for me.
1: I think they should. Definitely. (laughs) Thank you so much.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Justice. If you found it interesting, you can discover more about the work we do within the justice system by visiting our website, onesmallthing.org.uk. One Small Thing is a charitable organization striving for positive change in the justice system. If you would like to subscribe to Justice, you can do so via your usual podcast platform.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.